hope she comes. Um, Doc, I was going to call on Gita and you um, to start the class. Um, I was in the gym. I see Gita periodically at the gym, at the rec um, in, in Grapevine. And I saw her a few days ago and asked her how she was doing, and she said she's fine. And um, the, the class has set her thinking a lot. Um, she said it's made her think more seriously about lots of things. And she was expressing her, I think, gratitude and surprise. Um, at, at um, the effect of her thinking had on her. Um, it, it made her feel that she had been taking lots of things in her faith for granted. And I asked her, I can't remember the question was, I'm sorry she's not here, but her response to me when I said, so what's your thoughts about what we're doing with the difference between the Protestant and Catholic world? And she said, God, I wish you were here. She said something like, um, it makes you realize that if you, if you take this seriously, you can't help but change your life. Because if that's what you believe, and you're not living that, then you're just going through the motions. If that's what's really going on, and I haven't been living that, then I'm not doing something I should be doing. I mean, that was her. Um, I wish she, if she comes, I'm going to, I hope she comes, I'm going to ask her to um, say it in her own words. Suzanne and I were talking about that when I got home that night, and, and she recalled an instance that she related to me years ago, um, something I think she read in a book. Do you remember what we're talking about, Doc? Yeah, can you? So I was waiting for Robert to get out of class, and I was in a place I wasn't familiar with, and picked up a magazine. It was a Catholic parish, picked up a magazine, and some young man was writing about a friendship that he had with um, a Muslim, and that he's been explaining what Catholics believed in Mass to his friend. And at the end of his explanation, there was this pause, and then the Muslim said, I don't believe you believe that. Um, talking about the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And his friend shook his head and said, what do you mean? He said, if you believed that, you would be approaching the altar on your knees and prostrating yourself before you ever received. And I thought, hmm, well, that's convicting. Um, I do believe it, but I don't approach on my knees. I actually meant to, I'm not sure if I got that in my prayers tonight, but I was thinking about it because I had this thought on my mind, but just as a reminder for everybody that if we, if, if what we're receiving is Christ human and divine, fully both, then in one respect, um, we are in his kingdom now. That just follows. Um, and I wonder how many of us, one, receive it feeling like a divine life has entered us, and two, if it has, do we really feel, believe, have faith 
that the king, we are a part of that kingdom now. And that's the first thing that follows. The second thing that follows would be if we did and Christ were in us, then this stuff about um, our bodies being holy temples and the way we abuse them, we would get more serious about them. You know, that if that's a holy temple, if our body's a holy temple, then um, we have to take more seriously everything we do with our body because I, I, this angelic imagination that I've been talking so much about, this, what T.S. Eliot called this dissociation between our mind and body after Descartes, we live in our heads. It's so easy to live angelically in our heads and take our bodies for granted. It's just a way of the modern world. But if all of this is serious, and I, and I just think in our modern world, I, I didn't start out as a, I, my, I mean, I raised, was raised Greek Orthodox and then left it. And um, How many of us really live our faith? Because that's a, those are our beliefs. They inform what we do. That's just a, a, a quick... Um, that's um, the word. Just a, um, an introduction here. I, I want to ask this question and just ask everybody to keep it in the back of your mind as we go through the overview today. Because faith has been basic to everything we've been doing. We started out in the 16th century looking at this question of faith when it was the basis of the Reformation. It's the basis of our, everything we do in our church. Faith in what? <laughs> I'm not going to elaborate on this, but I want to ask that seriously. Faith in what? It seems to me the question of faith is more real for a Catholic or anybody who shares the high English churches, anybody who shares a belief in the sacrament. If you believe in the sacrament and the Eucharist, then what what your faith holds onto is something miraculous. Otherwise, what, what's the value of faith, right? Because if it's not that, if it's something that reason can, can get a hold of, then, then why describe it in terms of faith? I'm not sure that that was clear, but if, if what's in front of us is a, is a wafer and wine, and that's all it is, then we don't need anything more than reason to get a hold of it. I hope that's clear. So my question, faith in what? If it's not the Eucharist, if, if it's not the divine nature of God in human form, then what is our faith holding on to? Because presumably, the basis of faith is knowing things that we don't know by reason. So for a Catholic, it seems to me, faith ought to be far more serious because the, the end of that faith, the nature of it, is something miraculous, something we can't see. If all that's there in the body and in the wine and bread is wine and bread. We don't need any more than reason to get a hold of it. So I just want to hold that, ask everybody to hold on to that. If faith is real, are, are we living with, and I'm saying this, I mean, you, you know my life has been con, um, committed to studies in literature and philosophy, and um, I believe we live in a largely intellectual age, that we live in our heads. And we, we are accustomed to doing that. And I think the Catholic world has, in some ways, given in to that. So if our faith is real, are we really living it? Does faith, faith in those things unseen really inform what we do? Because the tendency of the modern world is to know something, believing that by knowing it, we have control over it.
But I've said this before, the nature of faith is holding on to something you have no reason for holding on to. Reason doesn't figure into it. So this is a serious question for me. Faith in what? If it's only the wafer and wine in front of us, reason can get around that. We don't need faith. So it seems to me there's a much greater reason for a Catholic to live his faith because he believes what's there is actually Christ. It's a lot more than that. One of the things that Gita said to me when we were, I'm sorry she's not here. She said, to realize that I'm taking my faith for granted when I, you know, this class is making her think more about these things, she said, it's scary. Because if that's really what's going on, I mean, it's like the example that Suzanne gave um, of this Islamic person who said, if you really believe that, your whole life would be changed. Um, we wouldn't be walking around. I mean, we're still humans, and, but what's going on inside of us would be, um, I think, radically different. But Mary, did you have something? Well, I was saying it's more than just the Eucharist. It's the Immaculate Conception. It's the Virgin. All of it. Yeah. Mary yep. was a virgin yep. all of her life. Yep. Yep. It, I mean, if you think about all the mysteries of the rosaries, all that was to combat yep. the, what, what the church was fighting at. Right. I mean, all of those are our truths. Yeah, I meant all of those. I was just right. focusing on one because it's been central to, but yes to all that. Anything that's sacramental, all of the whole sacramental life. The whole life of mystery. <clears throat> okay. Very, very quickly. Um, what I would like, I'd like to do two things, actually three. What I want to do is give a quick overview of Milton, just to try to put him in perspective. I want to um, go back and do a very quick review of the Reformation issues that were raised by the Reformers, and then I'd like to put all of it into a general perspective of the Christian world, to, to try to give an overview of everything, just to broaden the picture, to give us a, a larger context in which to see these things. So. But I'd like, I'd like to start with just this very brief window of the whole problem. If, if we took a look at a historical timeline, we'd see that um, history can be divided pretty clearly into sections. Um, the pre-Christian pre world was pagan. Um, it's different from the modern world in one important respect, and that is that the pagans believed in gods. You can't read the Iliad, the Odyssey, any ancient literature without realizing there's nothing they did that wasn't aware of the gods. And they were very this, this aware of it. When Homer writes, the, let me take the Odyssey just as an example because it's clear there. It's so clear that many of the people in the Odyssey don't take the gods seriously. If you've read the Odyssey, you know that. And those who don't are harmed. They're out of touch with reality. Homer sees that before Christ came. So the pagan world was a, a, a world in which men and gods interacted. Most people saw that clearly. But clearly, lots of people didn't. And those who didn't lived, today the modern world would be dysfunctional lives. I mean, they were out of, they were out of tune with reality. If you, if you go back to the Odyssey, the suitors deny the gods. You know, the maidservants deny them, and they end up all being killed. Odysseus's um, crew don't take seriously the prophecies. They all die. So Homer's very clear that, that men live their lives ignoring the gods at their own peril. Okay? 
Christ comes into the world, and in some sense, he, it's like he takes a veil off and shows that so much of what the pagans grasped were early intuitions of what Christianity came to show. So there's a compatibility between the Christian world and the pagan. There's the Savior come, the God, Godhead is real, God is real. And the greater mystery is that God took on a human form, which would have blown a pagan away, but, but there is a, some continuity, even though there's a radical change. We can call the Christian Middle Ages a theocentric world. It's God-centered. And, and it's different from the ancient world because it's God-centered in one um, strange and unique way. And that is that God, a God, God, no, God came down in a, and took on a human form to answer all of our sins. We call that a theocentric. What happens here has been at, at the core of everything that we've been doing together as a group. Because in the Reformation, certain ideas are introduced into the world at a time when science comes into the world. And the combination of those two things unsettle the world radically. Um, up until this time, it was believed that we were living under what, was, what would have been called then um, a geocentric universe an earth-centered, that's the Ptolemaic scheme, the earth was at the center of the earth and planets revolved around it. With Copernicus' discovery, um, the whole world was shaken. The authority of the church was shaken. Um, if, if, this is what the, if this is the basis of the church's belief, and this is the ground of authority, and it's wrong, then we should be questioning the very nature of religion itself. So, so science, the ad science as a paradigm enters the world then. And at the same time, um, with the printing press and, and the spread of education, you've got all these men who are um, zealous in their faith and are aware of certain corruptions in the church and want to answer them. And we get all these reform movements that we've, we've already looked at. So the combination of these two things unsettled the world in the ways that we've been talking about. What happens at this moment is what I've been calling the advent of the sign. You know, the disciples say, show us a sign, show us a sign. Um, what they're asking is that, and this is so ironic, it's comic, Christ has performed the miracle, you know, the, five, the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples are going, show us a sign. Um, only imagine what our Lord was thinking when he'd already done it, he's there, he's there. What they want is the supernatural to be accommodated to the grasp of our rational minds so that, so that we can completely understand it. Um, that's the beginning of what we would call the modern world, the scientific um, reformation world. And if you look at it, you, you can see that the, the situation that we're in today with the secular progressive world is in some part due to what happened then. Its, its roots are there. So today we're living in what we can call an anthropocentric world, a man-centered. It's not God-centered. And we've arrived at a point where the, all of the... Um, the philosophies and religions that were, and the science that was set in motion here has um, 
led most people to deny Christianity, to think of it as just another superstition, superstitious religion. So that I think it's fairly accurate to, to see what most people say today, that we've, we've entered a post-Christian world. I want to try to put this as neutrally as I can, because it's our world. Um, most people who don't have a faith today hold on to an ideology. An ideology is a system of the mind. It's a system of the mind. And they believe that Christianity is just another ideology. And one of the crises, one of the challenges that we faced in the modern world is this. Um, most modern educated people, certainly the liberal, what we would call today the liberal left, the educated left, believe that we, no, yeah, assume, believe that we can create a progressive democracy in which all people can get along despite their religious beliefs. So the great challenge of the, the modern world is, can we create a political community in which people of differing beliefs and even conflicting beliefs can get along with each other? Can a world, can a world, ex, can a world exist, a democracy exist, in which Christianity and Islam and Judaism, for instance, exist side by side with each other? This, when at the heart of Islam, is a belief, is a commitment to kill the infidels. Um, the, the, the Muslim, does, they do not believe that Christ is God. They believe he's a prophet. They don't believe in the Trinity. Christians do. And Christ himself said, I will come with a sword. Um, I will bring a conflagration, a fire that's going to destroy the world. So you've got religions that um, have an apocalyptic character to them. And the question is, can they coexist in a modern world that presents itself as being non-religious, non-biased? I mean, that's the way they would present themselves. So, so that's one of the aspects of modernity. So much of it was set in motion here with the advent of the sciences and the Reformation. And, and we've been seeing how, um, particularly on this question of faith, and I want to get to that um, in a minute. But, that's our timeline. That's where we are. Um, so many of the difficulties that, that um, overwhelm us, I think, in our day have their origins here. The way in which all of these fields come together. Um, I mentioned philosophy. Let me just um, identify a person named one to, to help give you some sense of what it all means. Descartes writes his discourse on method, just about the time Milton publishes Paradise Lost. And if you know anything about Descartes, you know that what he's trying to do is refound philosophy, refound it on science. Because he believes that science is, or philosophy is too uncertain under Plato and Aristotle. He wants to shore up its foundation so that it, it can give us the same kind of certainty he believes um, that sciences can give us. And the nature of his philosophy is, um, is this. He says, scratch everything, start all over. What do I know? The only thing that I know for certain are the ideas. He says it's God in his head, but he said, the ideas in my own mind. What happens with Descartes is um, the, the world of sensible objects is cut off from us. Because what we know are no longer things, but ideas in our heads. Kant follows him, and what we've got are what today we would call the, the idealist philosophies. 
idealist in the sense that what we know are ideas. Because everything outside our head are, um, what's the word? They're, <sighs> everything in our head is in some sense material. Everything outside of the head is material. What's inside of our head is immaterial. What's outside of our head are material. They're, they, they're of another mode. So there's this incompatibility between what goes on in our head and what's outside of it. So we become estranged from nature. Now stop and think about that because what we've seen in the Protestant mind is what you start with is an act of faith of a supernatural thing. I've already said this before. We lose our way into the natural order. So when those two things combine, what we've got here in the modern world is this estrangement from Ad, Ad Freud, Ad Darwin. Um, we have this estrangement from nature. We can't take our bearings any longer in nature, unless it's scientifically, and, and the, the methods of science are quantitative, mathematical. They're abstractions. We can't find our way back into the concrete order. So even the Catholic world is struggling with that. So this is our predicament. That's our predicament in the modern world, um, or, or at least some aspects of it, okay? Now, if there are not any simple questions, I want to get to Milton and do a quick review. But I mean, to any, I know that that's all, that that's all broad sweeps and very general. But when you say the world, <clears throat> are you talking about places like India and China, Japan, Vietnam, or are you talking about the United States? Sorry, what was the context of my comment? What, when well, I, the, the, what did I say? referring to the world? up there when you say the world was this, the world was that. Mm -hmm. Are you talking about the United States? Or are you talking about India and China? Largely, the yeah, largely the Western world. The Western world. Yeah. I mean, the, the non-Western world has been influenced by the West, largely. It comes here. I mean, I know that's not as true of China, but, um, but I'm thinking primarily of the Western world. Because it's it because of the advancements it's made in science and technology and how important religion and philosophy and, and the fact that they go together in the Western world in ways that not quite as true in the Eastern world or the non-Western world. Okay, quick quick review of Milton. Um, I think before, I mean, before we put Milton away, we have to do two things. One is to um, acknowledge his um, weaknesses and his strengths, um, because as I tried suggesting before, he's been such a major influence in the line of literature and the line of poetry in, in Western civilization, and he's, he's, he's left us with all sorts of problems. What are his weaknesses? Um, I want to identify several of them. In a sense, the weaknesses apply to almost everything he touched on. God, the angels, man and woman, good and evil, Christ. Okay. First God, what's the difficulty? It's impossible to read Milton in, in the way that he presents God and the Son and come away with any sense that 
God and the Son indwell. Even if Milton verbally makes it clear that they're of the same nature, they don't share that nature. When the Father speaks to the Son, the Son hears it as if he'd never known it before, and the Father, he may respond with something that the, we're supposed to hear as news to the Father. So we don't, we're not presented with a Father and Son who indwell. Um, they're separate and distinct. Um, and we're, we're left with the question of whether or what Milton's understanding of the Trinity actually is and whether or not he is an Arian. Because remember when in that scene when the Father calls the kingdom together to um, hear his announcement that he's, um, he's raising his son, this day I've begotten thee. Um, for Milton, that's, that's the source of the revolt of Satan because Satan's argument is God has no business doing that. For him to do that is pure arbitrary. It's, it's just the act of a despot. Pres presumably because the Son and all of the angels share the same nature. That's the argument that they make. And that he's, God is simply elevating the Son over the rest of them. Um, so the Son seems to have a special nature. He seems to be different from God in one respect. And the source of creation, the means of creation, and yet of one with it. Um, what does that do for our understanding of the Trinity? Um, this, um, if, the, if the three persons of the Trinity are indwelling, then there's nothing that they do that isn't in perfect communion. They're one with each other in knowledge and in love. So there's no way to characterize the Trinity except in terms of intimacies shared. There's no mystery between them. I mean, they're, they're, they're fully transparent to each other. Whatever, whatever of infinity and characterizes God is shared with his Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, that isn't the sense we, that we will get from it. We will get it from Dante eventually. It'll be a very different reading. Um, if humans, the, the implications of this, serious. If God is, and remember, even God himself, I read that passage where he says, why are you fussing about this because you're alone? Because I live in isolation myself. It, is, is there a difference between loving, no, being made in the image of God when God is isolated? Or God's communi communitarian? For sure. If God's alone and we're made in his image, then isolation should be a natural condition for us. If we're made in his image and he's Trinitarian, then we were made to love and be loved. We, we were meant in marriages to be one flesh. That's not just a metaphor. If marriages don't bring us to a point where we are perfectly one with each other, why are we married? I mean, at least in our faith. So, and at the heart of this for us is, it, you know, and I'm gonna to come to this in a minute, is the cross. At the heart of this awful faith, this beautiful, awful faith, is we have to die because if we don't, we will never fully enter into the love that Christ made clear to us and that he, and that he asked of us in his last command when he said, um, I leave you with this last commandment, love one another as, you know, as I did you. So Milton's treatment of God is problematic from the beginning. His treatment of angels, same. If angels... 
if, if evil isn't a thing separate, evil is a privation. That's the church's teaching. And it's, it, it's the only one that makes sense rationally, truly, if you think about it. If evil is a privation and an angel turns from God, rejects him, how can he not lose something of his being? Can't help it. Milton's Milt going to trace that. You know, when, you, when we first see Satan, he, well, he's fallen in the lake, but eventually he'll be this dragon and all the angels will be reduced to serpents. It's like they turn into ash. If, if the angels fell, they fell immediately, in an instant. There was no progress. If they turned, their wills, their intellects were. And if that's true, it, is, would it have been possible for one angel to deceive another? If one angel was full and complete, one in being with God, and one turned from God, and in some sense lost some of his being, how could that not be impaired? So I find Milton's treatment of the angels full of problems right from the beginning. When he, when he fools Uriel, remember when he's on his way to Eden, and then um, he'll deceive other angels. Um, so it raises a question what Milton's grasp of ontology, of being, the nature of being and good and evil, what, what, what the nature of that is. Um, his treatment of Adam and Eve seems to me it's one of the great glories of the poem to show Adam and Eve in the garden, but it's also problematic because um, it, it's so clear that when tempt, Satan tempts Eve, he tempts a person who's already in some sense fallen. She doesn't show all the characteristics you'll show after she eats the apple, but Milton has read back into the poem fallen conditions as a way of preparing for that moment, and it leaves us with this question. If, if, we, if, if our understanding of Genesis is Milton's, we will believe that. I think lots of people do. If we don't, then we've got to ask, what is Milton doing? I mean, he explained it one way. Is that adequate, or are there problems with it? It seems to me there are serious problems with it. Um, and there are two serious problems with Milton that I've, that I've gone over a number of times. One of them is, particularly because of his treatment of the war in heaven, what Milton does is take the war in heaven and make it Homeric. He casts it in a Homeric light. He takes it back to that Homeric Virgilian tradition. So instead of moving Christianity forward, because the basis of his belief was a faith now, working in that tradition and wanting to honor it, he, he actually undid it, you know that. I mean, he makes Satan the sort of anti-hero of the poem. But because he takes it as seriously, he does, it seems to me he takes us back there. I mean, what happens in the war in heaven is, is to me, silly. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to take any of it seriously for all the reasons I've gone over. So. In some ways, as much as he looks forward to the modern world, he seems to stick us back in an ancient world. That's not going to happen with Dante, and you'll see why when we get there. Um, and the second major concern along these lines is that the kind of knowledge that he's asking us to accept and the kind of knowledge he's asking Adam to accept is angelic knowledge. In both instances, um, when, Adam, when Raphael reveals the, you know, the war in heaven, he ends his time saying to Adam, I've I, I read those lines, they just, the irony of them are so strong to me. He says, 
Be sure not to ask more than you can understand as a human being. Acknowledge your limitations. What has he just done? He showed him a war in heaven that's beyond the scope of man. Um, and moreover, he said, I'm, you're going you're gonna to pass this, you'll pass this knowledge on to posterity. I've raised that. What does that do to our reading of Genesis? That, that before Moses gets a hold of anything, Adam already has this angelic knowledge of what happened um, at the time of creation. And that problem is extended with everything that happens with Michael at the end. Because what Michael does is not just tell him a story about a war in heaven. He gives him glimpses of things that haven't even happened yet. So both of them are modes of an angelic knowledge that exceed the limits of man. Um, what are the implications of that for our look into the differences between this Protestant and Catholic world? Not small, not small. Those are some of the problems, the, the weaknesses, what I take to be weaknesses in what Milton's doing. The great strength is the one that we've identified before. He took as the um, basis of his story, Genesis, the fall. Taking that as, as his subject, he went to the heart of every story that had ever been written before and that will ever be written after because it goes to the source, the cause of evil in the world, and the cause of goodness. God creating the world, Satan founding it. So um, we owe Milton a debt um, because he had the courage to try to understand every story by going to its source. Genesis is the beginning of everything. It's the beginning of creation. It's the beginning of good. It's the beginning of Adam and Eve, the human race. It's also the beginning of evil. Um, there are two other strengths, I think, in Milton. One of them is it's so clear when you read Paradise Lost that one of the things that drives Milton when you read Paradise Lost is his love of paradise. Almost more than Adam and Eve almost more in some ways than in God. If you read Renaissance literature, you can't read all of them. Um, who wrote the fairy Spencer, Spencer, Shakespeare, Milton, Dunn, all, all of them. Um, and, and particularly at the time of the Copernican Revolution, because a, a revolution took place that utterly shook the way men people, most people thought. There was at this period a longing for a golden age, a belief that there had once existed this paradisal condition. The Christians believed it, so did the pagans. You couldn't read Homer and Virgil and not realize that there, there had been a golden age. The heroes fell from it. So one of the great themes of the Renaissance, this belief in a golden age. Nobody has, and so very often in Renaissance literature, you'll get poets showing a pastoral world. You get it in Shakespeare's plays all the time, or poets writing about a pastoral world. Nobody treated it better than Milton, or more completely. You see in his treatment of paradise, paradise itself. And, and not even just Adam and Eve, just in the condition of paradise. And then exemplified in everything that they do with each other, the courtesy, the graciousness, the sense of honor, and the freedom from any problems. Um, that's a lasting legacy, to have that image in our minds. Um, um, the beauty of his poetry, it was lasting. Poets came under his influence for centuries afterwards. 
Um, and the, the, the last strength, one that we talked about briefly, is it seems to me, I mean, people may disagree here, but it seems to me that, that if we read Paradise Lost and we look at Adam and Eve before the fall and then look at them afterwards, that there's more to be said in admiration of them afterwards than before. Because they don't have to deal with anything before. They don't know that anything else exists. And I, I would even argue that they're much closer to God afterwards because they know evil. They don't before. Remember when he said, don't eat of this tree, it's the tree of good and evil. They're not to know of it. Because after that, there's something they can lose and they're aware of it. And um, it's interesting for me, I believe that Adam and Eve um, are more admirable after the fall. And I would say Eve um, um, is superior to Adam in, in countless ways. If you watch Eve after the fall, I mean, she's the one who is tempted. And I mean, you, I, I don't want to go back into the whole question of pride and you know, envy or anything else that existed, but she's the one who's tempted. Adam falls because he chose to be with her over God. He did it knowingly. She didn't. She was um, tricked. If you watch the two of them afterwards, after their fight, and then they reconcile, it's Eve who says, let it all, I'll read the passages, let it all come on me. Let it come on me. Um, hold on, let me, let me find the passage. Um, find it. Mm, can't. Um, but you remember that passage where she's so overcome with shame and guilt at what's happened that she says, um, let it all fall on me. It's something Adam doesn't do. She does. Um, and then there's the lines, this is in book 10, where she says, while yet we live scarce one short hour perhaps, between us two let there be peace both joining. Then again, same, same chapter, this is book 10, about line 930. Both have sinned, but thou against God only, I against God and thee, and to the place of judgment will return. There with my cries importune heaven, that all the sins from thy hand removed may light on me. This is the one may light on me, so cause to thee of all this woe, me, me only just object of his ire. In each one of these instances, Adam's response to her is to moralize a lesson. Don't be so hard on yourself. Um, watch your pride, you may be taking too much, you know. She's the one who's, who's showing a willingness to give herself up. Adam's in his head making statements. So, <coughs> What we see in Adam and Eve, and I think particularly in Eve, after the fall, is something that we would call more human. Um, because they're, they have to bear within them now, not only their sin, but the possibility that they could sin again, that they need God's help now. They're much closer to what we know as human beings. Um, okay. Now, here's where it gets tricky. 
We've been reading a poem. We've been reading a poem, not a catechism, not a doctrine. We're not reading Milton's prose work because in his prose works, he actually sets out doctrines. He will argue them. This is a piece of poetry. And the problem that we face from the beginning is, um, can we draw any conclusions about Milton as a Protestant from the poem itself? Those are inferences. It's not like we can make scientific demonstrations. We can't. Um, but a couple of things, it seems to me, we, we, we can say with um, a good degree of certainty. Uh, I made this point last time. Everybody's noted that all the great poets, Blake, Shelley, all said Milton was of the devil's party because he seemed more fascinated with Satan. He, he, he gives Satan a greater dramatic force than anything else in the poem. In some ways more than God, more than the Son, certainly more than Christ at the end. And I want to I get there finally because that's the center of our belief here um, is Christ. One poet said this of Satan. And remember, keep the pattern of the whole poem in mind when you hear this. Because you know that through the first five books, our focus is on Satan, his energy, his courage, his, willing, his willingness to risk the abyss, um, to take on God. And in so many of the scenes showing God the Father, we've got almost a schoolmaster, spiteful, defensive, justifying. Um, Milton, I mean, Satan finally doing the tempting and ruining God's work and then getting this to Christ. So when you put the pattern of the whole poem together and set the end next to the beginning, what he does with Christ is almost embarrassing. What he describes with, of Christ, he does in abstract statements. I hope that's clear. There's no action realized. He doesn't show us Christ doing anything, okay? The, the dramatic force of the poem is with Satan and Adam and Eve. When we get Christ, it's through statements. That is, it, they're words about something, not an actual rendering of the thing. So when you put that together, you wonder, where's Christ? The, the real dramatic center is, is Satan, even though we're watching him fall, go to his ultimate end, his decline. This is what one critic says, and there's a lot of truth to it. It's, it goes to a question I asked last week. It is, I think, the barrenness of this victory which makes some misunderstanding of Satan's function inevitable. Um, let me see, hold on. This? Yeah. His regression forces us with a sort of vacuum and through the values which triumph over him are everywhere announced. They are never brought to the foreground of our ascent. Milton can describe pride and in doing so condemn it, but love is to him never much more than loyalty and humility teaches him only to stand and wait. He may justify God's ways, but he does not celebrate them. His sense of responsibility is too contractual, too persistently concerned with the mechanics of crime and punishment for goodness or mercy to come into being within it, because such goodness is so seldom real within the limits of Milton's poetry. It becomes possible to claim that the poet was interested predominantly in evil or with an evil that was unconsciously his good. I would amend that. I would say his focus is less on the power of love, let me put it that way, 
and more on evil as something to be defeated or that has its defeat within itself. That's not the same thing as love. I'll say that again, okay? His focus isn't on love, act concretely dramatizing it, making it real before us. His <coughs> preoccupation was an evil to be defeated. And we watch it almost, you know, almost be defeated by itself because when Satan returns, he shrinks. It's not a result of the defeat in heaven when the sun defeats him, because that's where the poem begins, right? The war in heaven takes place, the angels are defeated. The poem starts when they're in hell. They've fallen into hell. So Milton is um, preoccupied with the force of evil in the world as something that will be defeated or that will undo itself, but not love. When it comes to matters of love, he's much thinner, less convincing. And when we get to Christ, as I've already said, when he talks about Christ, it's in statements. We don't get Christ rendered. Not in his life, and more importantly in a minute, not on the cross. And the implications of that to me are enormous. Because such goodness is so seldom real within the limits of Milton's poetry, it becomes possible to claim that the poet was interested predominantly in evil, and even that evil was unconsciously his good. Some conclusions are, to mine, untenable. So many of the prop... Shelley, the poets, who thought of themselves as being prophetic, you saw from the poetry, the reading we did with Blake, Shelley, they, they both have a sense that there's something prophetic to poetry. Um, both of them said of Milton, he's of the devil's party. Not consciously, just temperamentally. So preoccupied with that idea. Milton knows his Satan well enough to reject him and to make that rejection a poetic fact. You can't doubt it. If that dismissal is never stabilized in its transformation by a higher, higher poetic acceptance, the failure should not blind us to the poverty of the value Milton condemns or to the reality and force of his, dis, dis, his depiction of evil. He's solid in being able to do that and show how evil undoes itself. But love... He doesn't show us that working. When we start reading Dante, you will not read a line and not find the, the, the one thing that you'll say about that poem when you put it down is it's about love everywhere. Dante's the poet of love. Milton is the poet who's, who's preoccupied with the power of evil in the world. Remember I said this before. Milton didn't have to do this. He could have taken the fall. He could have done a book on Satan. And he could have done dozens of other things, but he didn't. And what we've got now are these problems, at least as I'm trying to um, present them. So, um, let me go back, let's see. So let me leave Milton now with a couple of questions because I, I want to be very careful here because this is such a touchy area. Um, this is a poem. It's not a, it's not a catechism. It's not a treatise on doctrines. Can we come to any conclusions? Does Milton's preoccupation with evil and the way he presents this story reflect something Protestant in his beliefs? Wait, wait, and when we'll set that next to Donnie, it'll be a little bit clearer. 
Um, can we specify them? Can we identify them? But particularly with what we've learned from the Reformation doctrines in the, in the uh, background that we did before we started Milton. Mary, go ahead. Well, I was just wondering, do you think he did it consciously or unconsciously? That did what? He, that he put the focus on defeating evil as opposed to making adoration towards love and, and mercy. Mm-hmm. I See, think that's Puritans. Puritans. It's Puritans. If you look up at the history. Explain that. Explain that. You go with what you know. Wait, wait. So, <laughs> sorry? Explain? <laughs> I don't know if he, if he consciously or, oh, or he, yeah. if he unconsciously. Or, you know, he, he just never had been loved like that. He didn't. He wasn't taught to love like that. He wasn't taught that God would love like that. He just, well, I don't know. He treated these religious characters, they're characters in a play. That's it. He wrote it, I think, like, when you were talking earlier, how he treated God and angels, they're characters. Just like he would write about some guy going down to, you know. But the question is, are they characters of his belief, or just characters in the story? Let, Let me put it differently, if I can, Carl. We've, we've had this discussion before, Mark. Bill's a serious writer. He's a serious poet. So is Dante. So is Homer. We're talking about men who are telling stories whose, I, let me try to, whose whole sensibility, whose whole mind, the way they look at the world, let me skip the word beliefs just for a second. The, what, when we read Homer, he's showing us characters. But there's no way to read that story without realizing that reflects the way he sees the world. And very often, we learn something through him that we can't learn through the characters themselves because the characters themselves don't see a lot. Let me give an example. If any of you who've read the Iliad, does Achilles understand the nature of everything that's going on in that poem? Does Odysseus? Does Aeneas? Absolutely not. But there's no way to read those poems without seeing that whatever happens reflects the beliefs of the poet. That's the way he sees the world. And remember, from the beginning, I've said this, the poet is a vates. It's the way he sees himself. He takes this stuff seriously. He's trying to speak for his people to show his people something important. If you take the Odyssey, just for an example, you can't read the Odyssey and not realize the suitors are stupid, stupid men. Everything they're doing is leading to their doom. You can't read it without saying of Odysseus's shipmates. They are st- he the word napios fools fools they don't know what they're doing and by the way in the greek the word fools mean they they don't know how to use language they can't use words because words help us to see into words help us to see into the our world so we can see has anybody been doing this reading for all this and not felt you're learning to see the world better than you did before if not why are we here there's nothing that milton wrote that didn't reflect his beliefs and my question here is that's true of every poet. What can we learn about him as a Protestant? Mary, your question's a little bit too hard for me. Milton didn't go into this going consciously unconscious, because the unconscious is, we don't, we're not aware of it. Tilliard, who I think is an extraordinary critic, speaks about what Milton does consciously, because you can't miss it. And he also speaks to what he thinks is going on unconsciously in Milton by looking at the poem. But did they have unconscious and conscious as far as... Absolutely. No, they did, but the way we look at it today is conscious and unconscious thoughts. I don't think they had that. Hold on, hold on. I want to be careful because I want to... You cannot read 
poetry going back to its very beginnings. And I'm going to start with Homer's, the first great poet. There's no way to read Homer and not become aware that Homer is aware of what today, because of what Freud has fashioned for us, we would call the unconscious. And I want to make a distinction. If you, if you, if you go through the Iliad and the Odyssey, you'll see moments where something happens that takes a man beyond what he can consciously know. Achilles has the dream vision at the end after Patroclus has died. Patroclus comes to him in a dream. You've already got dream psychology in Homer 2,000 years, 2,500 years before Freud. You, can, you cannot read these poets without understanding. They understood more about the unconscious than modern psychologists do. And partly for this reason. Modern psychology that goes back to Freud is going back to a form of determinism. It's determined. These things are fixed. What Freud doesn't understand, what Freud does not understand is the spiritual unconscious. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe man has free will. Those are open statements on Freud's part. He has no sense of a spiritual unconscious. He has a profound sense of an animal unconscious that's determined. It's fixed. You cannot escape it. He has no clue that. You can't read serious poets, Shakespeare, Dante, Dunn, all of them, and not find that most great poets are plumbing an unconscious. And they don't go into it saying, I know this is going on. Very often they're writing something and discovering something as they penetrate it, just the way we do. But so much of what they're penetrating is what to, today, uh, I mean, somebody who's thought about these things would call a spiritual unconscious. That is a light from another world, not just the darkness, for Freud, a light. So Mary, for me, you're, you're, you know, it's a, you're asking a really tough question. Milton was obviously conscious about all of this. He planned, to, he worked years and years on this. But what, what does that allow us to say about his unconscious? That's just such a tricky area. My question here is, I'm trying to be simpler. If we look at the poem, can we, can we draw conclusions? Can we make inferences about his faith? Because clearly his faith was everywhere in this, everywhere. And let me just give one, one example, because I've said it before. The importance that he gives to angelic imagination is partly a reflection of his Protestant mind. You can't miss that. It's a dominant aspect of the poem. When we get to, when we get to Dante, we're in another world, absolutely other world. Let me, let me do a quick, unless anybody's got a, another question before we leave Milton. I was just trying to say about the Puritan type of historical, they were so much into evil and bad, this and yes. crucible and yes. things like yes. that. Yes. It's like it makes sense that he oh, right. believes in that because right. of, of how they how they live their lives. Yeah. Because they were afraid of evil. Can you flesh that out, Valerie? Give a, any, I don't know. <laughs> can you make that concrete in any way? In what form would you mean? Any way that you can. I just I, no, I'm no, okay. just, no, I'm just saying if you look at Calvinism and, you know... Well, go there just for a moment. What about Calvin? Just land well, on it for a minute. Unless I don't know it 
correctly. I just think it's it's very stripped down. There's no saints. There's no sacraments. There's just everyone has to be afraid. You have to make sure you don't do evil. Everyone is, you know, right, and you're punished, right? It, 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 it's like it, it, it's almost like you're afraid. There is no love, as you were saying. There's no love. It's all tipped yep. over on the other side. Yep. Yep. Just to take Calvin for, I'm going to come to it in a second, just take Calvin for one example. Calvin believed that some men were predestined to damnation before they were born. So they're going to be punished before they come in. And obviously, if, you, if you're raised in a Calvinistic culture, family, neighborhood, whatever, is it, is it possible to grow up in that neighborhood, that family, or a country, culture, and not have questions about whether or not you're one of the damned before you ever had a choice in it. What an, I mean, what an ugly, ugly, I, I myself can't think of a religious doctrine more inhuman than that. I, I don't know of it. And, and, and if you think about it all, it imputes an evil to God, because where did that come from? I mean, it, it darkens the whole world. The implications of that, for, and, I, and I, I think I shared this with you, I'm just shocked when I came here to Texas, I mean, I thought Calvin was dead. Truly. I mean, I thought he had died out. It does on the eastern seaboard. That, I mean, we talked about the decline of the Protestant world there. We came here and I discovered that's not so at all. Calvin's cultish. very much alive. It's very cultish. You have, you know, the person on top, he knows everything, whatever, and everyone else is, I mean, that, that's how I see it. Yeah. Okay, one person is, then, yeah. then you have all these other all these other sects doing other things. Anyway, let me conclude before we... Or, but it seems to me one of the questions, at least as in, in the form of a question, and let me just try to put it that way without coming to a conclusion. Given the nature of those beliefs, does it incline a person to be more negative, to, um, to make darkness evil greater than it is? I, let me let me leave it as a question. I just want to put that out, because it. I mean, at least see, that seems to f a fair way for me to, at least pose the question to Paradise Lost as we're reading it, because Milton's preoccupation with evil you can't miss. Is that a reflection of a of a religious belief that has allowed evil to become greater than it than the good answering it? And it's even more interesting for me. When you look at Milton's treatment of Christ at the end, that's, that's our Savior. That's his Savior. Let me come back to that. I just want to throw that question out, okay? Let me go on. Um, we've got two poets. I've done, oh, here, here. Let me click them. Some of the Reformation beliefs, hold on to this. The most important of the Reformation's beliefs were sola fide, faith alone. That's enough. No traditions, no sacraments, faith alone. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. Okay? The sacraments are eliminated. We saw that, even in, even in Luther. In, among, not, not among the Anglican and Episcopalians because they held on to them. But as you move down through the Lutherans and then what today we would call the low church or the fundamentalist church, the sacraments are eliminated. 
So what happens in those churches is that Christianity gets reduced to a moral code. The advent of the sign. Everything gets flattened. It gets rationalized. It's shrunk down. The mystery, the mysterious is gone. The authority for truth now resides in the congregation. Whatever that congregation decides will be. If it decides that same-sex marriages is fine, it'll be. If it decides women can be priests, it will be. There's, there's no objective authority. The authority is the faith of each person individually himself. So faith becomes subjective. It loses its objective ground. There's no objective authority. It's whatever that person will make it. That person becomes the arbiter of his own life. That's why the churches keep fragmenting. I was just talking with Father Flynn the other day about what was going on here, and he was, we were both smiling and just shaking our head. He was describing an experience he had at, at what's the point where he taught, or where he, Pilot Point. Pilot Point. So when he first got there, this is, this is not a good comment on our church. So when he first got there, the Catholics, I don't remember the, whoever it was, but he said the, the Czechs started coming in, the Czech Catholics, I think, I may get the races wrong here, but he said, then whoever was in the church left, and when somebody else came in, the Czechs left. <laughs> it's this racial spirit in the church, and he was commenting on it and then talking about some of them going off and forming Protestant branches. They converted and went to Protestant and then had fights among themselves and would break off and form another one, and then another one and another one. I mean, I, I, mean, I know friends who've gone through those experiences regularly. If your convictions are personal um, and you hold them strongly enough and you have a strong will, and Milton certainly did, and you think somebody's wrong, on what basis do you do what you do if it's not your own private sense of what's right and wrong? So a strong spirit of relativism, of subjectivity, enters the world here. Okay? The Catholic Church says that the, the authority of the church is infallible. Why? Because, because Christ is its founder. He's present in the church. In that passage that I read from Scripture when Christ says, who do they say I am? And remember, he gives Peter the keys. That's a, that's a taking of the auspices moment. Peter says, you are the Christ. And, and Christ says, nobody showed that to you. That's from the Holy Spirit. That's a moment of linking Peter as the head of the church or the, the person of primacy, if you want to call it that, and the authority of the Holy Spirit that has Christ's confirmation. So the church moving forward through time has always seen itself as holding on to that, that understanding of Christ's place in the church and the place of the Holy Spirit. church calls that the magisterium, that it holds on to the, it's the treasury of the doctrines. It's held on to all the sacraments, the sacraments were present in the beginning of the church. They still are. The church's understanding is the sacraments show Christ actively performing miracles now. Even if they unfold slowly over time, are, he is present in them, working. The most important are the Eucharist and confession. But marriage orders, all of them are. They're all important. It's the church's way of trying to hold on to mystery and reason, both. Not one at the expense of the other, both. There's no flattening. 
there are these two bold things, faith and reason, that move together. And anybody who's anybody who's thought about this, I think, can say, if you you know, you, you I think you'll appreciate it sometimes in the people you read. There are people you read and you can't read them without understanding they see more than other people. How? Because their reason is infused with faith. It, they're not distorting the world by what they do with their reason. They're showing that reason has this extraordinary capacity, this rich capacity to see once it's infused with faith. They're not at odds with each other. The Protestant world in its beginning, reason belongs to the natural world. It's one of the things that was depraved. Luther hated Aristotle. The natural order is depraved and has no free will. Reasons, soil. Um, the Catholic world has always upheld the importance of tradition. Tradition was there before scripture. That's just strange. The Gospels weren't written until later. The scripture was already there. And stop and think about it. The, the Christian traditions that begin with Christ continue the Judaic, the Hebrewic traditions. They're continued and changed, but they continued. So the traditions were always there. They took a radical change, a, a turn with Christ, but that turn was made in a way that carried the past with it. So the traditions were there before Scripture. They informed it. And, and think, watch, watch this. This is sort of amazing. Is there any other way to describe Paul any other way to describe Paul except as the first theologian? I can't read Paul. I cannot hear him without thinking he's one of the most extraordinary people who's ever lived for this reason. He took experiences that were being played out, right? People drinking wine, eating, people sitting in communities, whatever was going on trying to live Christ. Nobody had ever written about this before. Or, I mean, it, the narratives are different. They're telling stories. Paul is explaining them. He's giving a conceptual cast to what was not conceptual, right? He's a theologian. Where did he get that? That's the beginning of the tradition. He's, I mean, he's a part of it there at the beginning. Can you see the tradition without him? There's no way. So the tradition has been absolutely essential. All the church councils continue to work out problems. Who is this guy? Some people said he was all man, or some people would say, oh, you know, I mean, the church, early church councils had to fight this stuff out all the time. So the tradition is absolutely essential. It's a guide. Tr imagine trying to, or put it this way, it, is it possible to imagine trying to understand Christ without the help, without seeing yourself go off? Because if you watch what happens, people go off <coughs> in every direction. Every one of the heresies, people were convinced. What if, what if, what if you were one of those people? and you didn't have the help of the tradition. What's to say you wouldn't go off? I hope I'm being clear. I mean, if we're left with the fallibility of our own reason, how often do we go wrong? Take something as mysterious as Christ. What would we do without it without the help of a tradition? God. If you have the fallibility of reasoning and giving a text, which so many other people can quote, and that text, by the way, the one guide to us forming that text was mostly tradition. But what's, where are you going to end up 
if, if, if you had the fallibility of reason and you're giving a test and said, here you go, as well as, you know, the Word of God, as the old souls of you know, if that's your only guidepost and you have the fallibility of reason, I guess it goes back to how they emphasize, like, faith. It's, everything's to my faith, my interpretation, what I have, as I'm guided by the Spirit interpreting the Scripture. Yep. But, we're, I, I don't know, it seems like if that's the case, and you're also someone who has a fallibility of reason, there's not much going to come of that that's... Well, what we see is if we look historically... <coughs> I, I only read through sections of John Henry Newman's um, development of Christian doctrine. That's after his conversion because he once, remember I told you he was a part of that Tractarian movement where all the Protestants were wanting to reform the Protestant church because it had become too lax. And in the process they, they found that the problem wasn't in the Protestant church, it was, it went deeper and back farther in time and so many of them converted. He wrote the book called Development of Christian Doctrine in, in which he's showing that an organic change is a part of the church, that the church continues to learn as it goes through time. The, the, the point I'm trying to emphasize here is, imagine, look at all the church councils historically. Take a historical look. You can't read them without seeing over and over again how men go off in different ways, how susceptible we are to take something as mysterious as Christ and make him something he isn't. Take that away, and what would we do? I mean, I can't imagine the mess we would be in. Is that clear? God. Um, so tradition has always been important for the church. Always. Um, it rests on the infallibility of Christ as the founder, the unity behind the Pope that protects the unity of Christ, the truth of it, um, and all of the sacraments um, that are expressions of Christ actively at work in the world now. I want to go back to this, this graph I did a couple of weeks ago to show the difference between the angelic and symbolic imaginations. Remember that in the angelic, we never get to the thing, the common ordinary human thing. Um, Raphael tries to explain what goes on in heaven by, by finding corporeal images, but he never gets back to them. So the, the natural order is circumvented. It, it's lost. It, um, you, can't, you can't test out your belief by looking to the natural order. It's depraved. The very fact that you start with something you can't know means you have no way of knowing where you're going to go. You're in a world of unknown. The, the Catholic starts with the known thing, the simple thing, and by a, a process of working, penetrating things, finding analogies, um, he, can, he, can, he can discover the transcendent in the ordinary, the supernatural in the natural. Um, and he does it without ever losing the thing. He, he carries it with him. So he can go into unknown worlds. He can enter a supernatural world. And, re and reveal mysteries to it there, but never at the cost of the ordinary thing. He always carries it with him. That to me is one of the most perfect images of the Eucharist that I know. Um, very often in, in business worlds, um, we've talked about it a number of times, you know, people are encouraged to think outside the box. 
Um, it's just, I think it's really important to be careful about that because what Milton does is start with what he doesn't know. The, what Dante's doing is starting with what he does know and by learning to look at it more closely, he will discover things that aren't obvious. But he always does it with what's known. Um, so we've got two, again, two very different ways of, of relating to the world. And, and I just, I want to, I want to leave with just a couple of, a couple of questions. I want to try to put these in the form of questions here, but remember, we'll see this in Dante. In the natural order, according to our Catholic faith, the natural order is good. God created, it's good. Everything in the natural order should reveal God if we looked at it closely enough. It's one of the reasons I've been doing the lyric poems, right? Look at a, a wind hover, a fi uh, um, the fire going out. If you read all of Shakespeare's son, you can't read them without seeing in the ordinary thing something extraordinary. That's what makes them great poets. They, they can see those things and show it. We never feel there's something unnatural. When we read about the wind hover, I don't, we don't come out of that saying it's an unnatural thing. I think it's come out of it thinking, holy cow, it's there. Did I, did I miss it? The natural order to the Catholic is good. Christ took on a body. He sanctified the natural order. He didn't come into a corrupt order. He sanctified it. He took on a body. Everything he did when he went in and was baptized, he sanctified the water. And it, it just he changed our attitude towards nature. If, it, if there was any question about it before. So even while we believe that the natural order is good, we still believe that man's capable of sin. This is what we're going to see on Dante's Purgatory. This is a glimpse looking forward. What we will see on Dante's world is the, what, what we see in Dante's world is basically this. And it raises this question about evil in the world. According to our understanding, God made nothing evil. Everything he made was good. Evil gets introduced in the world when we turn away from God and introduce a privation into the world. Evil's a privation. It's a destruction. It's taking away something. Every one of these sins strikes at a good. The, the sins on lower purgatory are, are called love of, love of evil. And by that what's meant is um, not that some evil exists, it's it loving something um, in an evil way. So for example, in pride um, um, we want to be other, we want to be above other people at their expense. So indirectly, we're wanting harm to come to them. That's what pride means. It means, and very often means look, treating somebody as an object. Instead of loving them, we make ourselves more important. At, um, and the cost of that is turning somebody into something less than he is. So instead of loving another human being as an image of God, we use that person. Envy is um, wanting to see somebody lose something because we don't have it. Sister watches a sister get a dress, and she wants that dress. When the sister spills something on it and stains it, she laughs. She's glad because she didn't have it. And he's wanting to see harm come again to another person. Wrath, and then be careful here. 
Anger is not a sin. Modern world has gone amok on this. Anger is not a sin. Christ got angry. Peter and Paul got angry at each other. Wrath is. Wrath is an excessive anger. Wrath is um, wanting to see somebody hurt who's hurt you. So all of these, the, what's behind them is loving the evil to come to another person. Okay? Sloth means inadequate love. The natural loves are love of good things excessively. <laughs> we want things too much. We're a culture given to things. Yeah? I mean, it's, it's not good. Gluttony means loving food too much. Lust means loving sex too much. And notice that as you move up, and by the way, there's no way that any of these don't happen without the support of these. There's no way anybody's going to lust without carrying pride with him. Every one of these gets carried up. But as you watch purgatory, you're, you're learning to purge each one of these until you get here. And notice that at the very top, properly ordered love, where's lust? It's the one closest to it. Because we're moving more and more in the direction of a purified love. Because all of these are disordered loves. So what Dante's showing us is, is this, and the Protestant world doesn't get it. There is no evil in the world. God made everything good. <coughs> evil comes into the world because we love in the wrong way. We love the wrong things, or we love harm coming to people. Is that the way the Protestant views evil, or the world, the goodness of it? Um, the Catholic world is filled, has a great... Is, is more inclined to encourage people to, to experience a wonder at the goodness of God's creation. How many of us do? So, for Dante, love, this is the great paradox at the center of faith, love is the cause of evil. You ask, you ask young people, ask, a homosexual couple. Um, if, if, um, if you were talking with somebody in a detached way and could carry on a conversation and somebody were to ask you, tell me why you think it's wrong, it seems to me the only obvious answer to that is because it's a disordered love. Because to that person, that person will say, love is never wrong. Because most people today believe love is good. Is that clear? Set that against Dante or the Catholic tradition. Love is the cause of evil. We either love bad things coming to people or we love things that are, nat that are inherently good the wrong way. The whole, the whole course of our life is to help us order our... St. Augustine, ordinate. Make our loves ordinate. To become, to love like Christ. What defines a Protestant's response to the world? Where this sense of evil and darkness seems greater than our capacity to love. And once again, remember, we've lost our way into the natural order. You can't look to nature because science is taken away, or the Protestant mind is taken away because it's depraved. It's depraved. Look at 90% of the movies coming out of Hollywood. They're horror films. They're horror films. You can't, I mean, there are these strange creatures that are... Stephen King, you, you can't... 
if you watch, I don't read him, but I, I've seen a couple of movies and then I saw it and that was enough for me. You can't watch him without seeing there's this inherent evil in things. There's an inherent evil in things. It's waiting for us. Where does that come from? That's not Catholic. That's Manichaean. That's Manichaean. Is there a Manichaean element to the Protestant mind? Spirit matter. Matter's evil. It's depraved. The Catholic would say it's good. We should learn to love it as, you know, as being good, to find God in it. So there are fundamental differences here at issue. Um, let me leave with, I mean, let me stop and then I'm going to open it up quick, but let me, I want to read two, just two passages that in some ways summarize all this. Um, in book 12, Paradise Lost, I read over this passage, but I couldn't find the cross. I want to go back to it now if you've got Milton. Book 12, line 402, following. This is Michael talking with Adam again, and, he, and he's. Um, this is in that section where Adam will suddenly realize that if he if he takes seriously the consequences of his fall and disciplines himself, he will carry paradise within him. And remember, this is not a small thing for Milton because this state of perfection um, was was dear to him. But I want I want to look at this passage because it it raises. It raises a serious question in my mind for Milton, and the question is this. Having turned away from the church and anything objectively real or mysterious, because you know for the, most Protestants, certainly the lower church, most Protestants looked at the ceremonies of the Catholic Church as superstitions. And so I want everybody to take that seriously for a second, because you can, you can hear that and finally gloss over it. Imagine being somebody coming into a church and watching a priest stand over doing and waving his hands and nothing happening. The chalice and the bread are still there. And the people in the congregation, if you happen to stop and talk with any of them afterwards, will say there was this great transformation that took place. And um, Christ in his divinity in human form was present. What else is there to say except what a superstition? Are you kidding? It belongs to a pre-enlightenment age before reason came to itself enough to know better, those are all superstitions that a divine thing is occurring right in front of your eyes without tidal waves or the earth shaking or, you know. What are they but superstitions? They're just ceremonies. Mil Milton, the Protestant world, largely believed that. You know that from the reading because he repeatedly talks about the superstitions and the rites and the ceremonies. Um, this is Michael saying to Adam things that he should know to 
and once again, like Raphael, tell him to limit himself to the knowledge that's peculiar to him as a human being with all of its limitations. The great irony of that to me is this is an angel, once again, but he's saying, don't, don't try to exceed your limits. Stay within your limits. Know your limits as a human being. And then included in this section, he says this. This is about line 402. The law of God exact he shall fulfill both by obedience and by love, though love alone fulfill the law. Now, what have we learned to feel? What has Milton helped us feel about love in this book? The most tender passages for me involve Eve. I mean, they're the ones that I showed you a while ago. There's nothing involving Christ because everything said about Christ is in statement. Alone fulfill the law. Thy punishment he shall endure by coming in the flesh to a reproachful life and cursed death proclaiming life to all who shall believe in his redemption and that his obedience imputed becomes theirs by faith. Underline that word imputed. If any obedience comes to a man, a Christian, according to Milton, it will be imputed. Because you believe in Christ, it will be a part of you. Now think about the difference between that and a Catholic who starts, who starts because he believes what's in front of him is real, that what's asked of him is obedience. The Protestant begins by saying, faith alone. Whatever you make of it will be. The Catholic begins in an act of obedience. That's his God, bow down. Give your will to him. Um, and, th and that his obedience imputed becomes theirs by faith. His merits to save them, not their own, though legal works. So even if they're legal in the world, they're not going to save him. I mean, this is the, this is the anti-works position of the, of the Protestants. It'll be by faith that man is saved, not any legal, even if the works are looked at in, legally in terms of the world, they won't be enough. Good works won't do it. To save them, not their own, though legal works, for this he shall live hated, be blasphemed, seized on by force, judged, and to death condemned, a shameful, accursed, nailed to the cross by his own nation, slain for bringing life, but to the cross he nails thy enemies, the law that is against thee, and the sins of all mankind. With him they're crucified, never to hurt them more, who rightly trust in this his satisfaction, so he dies, but soon revives. Death over him, no power shall long usurp. I can't read these lines without feeling flat. That's Christ. It's all statement. There's no dramatic force in it. We're not watching Christ do something the way we did Satan or Adam and Eve. This is intellectual abstractions. And the, but the point I want to make here is a shameful and a curse nailed to the cross by his own nation, slain for bringing life, but to the cross he nails thy enemies. I want to throw out a an observation here and try to leave it. I'm trying, trying to be careful here, even if I'm not succeeding. One of the questions that I have about Milton is, is what place he made for human weakness. He hated the monasteries. His word for describing the monasteries was cloistered virtue. He believed that unless a man went out and risked his life, that that man wasn't worth very much. So he had nothing but scorn for the monasteries, what he called cloistered virtues. They weren't tested. So he had this sense that men 
to be really strong, had to test themselves and do things. I believe as Milton got older, his attitude on that changed somebody, but that's something we still see visible here. What, how did Milton understand the cross? and the weakness that Christ displayed in allowing himself to be nailed to it. We venerate the cross. His picture here couldn't be farther away from veneration. It's, it's a place where Christ nails his enemies. When Christ says to us, or the Catholic, in the Catholic Church, our understanding is he invites us to this cross. We should enter it with him in love. How many of us turn away? I mean, the cross to me is a terrifying thing. Speaking personally. But couldn't you interpret Wait, let, me, let me finish and then. Set this passage on the cross. Set this one next to it. Okay, this is from Traherne, an early Christian, okay? That cross is a tree set on fire with invisible flame that illumineth all the world. The flame is love. The love in his Johnson who died on it, in the light of which we see how to possess all the things in heaven and on earth after his similitude. For he that suffered on it was the Son of God as you are, though he seemed only a mortal man. He had acquaintance and relations as you have, but he was a lover of men and angels. Was he not the Son of God and heir to the whole world? To this poor, bleeding, naked man did all the corn and wine and oil and gold and silver in the world minister to an invisible manner even as he was exposed, lying and dying upon the cross." At the center of the Catholic faith is this belief, if, if, if one has faith, that whatever ordeals we pass through, if we pass through them in faith, we, we enter into a cross and pass through them on the other side to meet Christ. The person we meet on the Christ is him. It's not just a place to nail his enemies. So the question that this leaves me with is, is there something in, in Milton, in the heroic stature of his own personal will, the strength of it, that made him hold weakness in contempt. Even though God did an ultimate act by allowing himself when he was immortal, because God's immortal, a God who can't die, who took on human nature and submitted mortal power to death, to a cross. That, that somewhere in our belief, we believe that, that are at some ultimate point in our own human weakness, if, our faith, if we hold on to our faith, we will find Christ there. Why did, Milton, why did Milton not do more with Christ and with the cross? He, shows all, he has all this heroic energy, I mean, showing you know, Satan and he does, I think, a wonderful job of showing Adam and Eve after their fall. But with respect to this one central tenet of our faith, God dying on a cross, he leaves it with these lines. Um, anyway, sorry, Fred, go, sorry, no, go ahead. No, no, go on, I'm sorry. No, that's just fine. I'm good. You sure? Sorry. Yeah, I'm good. So, any other serious questions here at the in this modern world. Um, and I want to go back to this thing. If all that's before us, you know that Luther took away all the sacraments except <coughs> baptism and uh, the Eucharist, and he changed those. And for 
so many Protestant denominations, the, the Eucharist is a commemorative act. It's not a sacramental act, it's commemorative. If all that's there, I'm going back to the Eucharist because it's so important. If, if all that's there is just a piece of bread and some wine, then why isn't reason enough? If faith is the basis of our belief in God, are we taking away faith by not acknowledging that there's something so extraordinary going on before us that it takes an act of faith to get to it? How alive is that faith in us? Are we taking it for granted? Do we really believe when we go up and receive the Eucharist? That's God. And are we loving the way he loved us when we didn't deserve it? He didn't ask us to put justice away. He asks us to make justice real, to not give it up. A mercy, a mercy without justice is not mercy, it's a mess. But a justice without mercy is not Christ's love. When we take the Eucharist, do we take him in and struggle to make that real in our lives, in what we do with each other, everybody else? Where are, where are we? Um, what's going on in our faith? Um, are we sufficiently clear on how we differ from a Protestant that it makes a difference in our lives and what we're doing with each other? Let me stop there. Any, any questions? Well, one of the things I asked, you know, back to your question before, really about the difference between Catholics and Protestants, I get back to is I think we still show Christ on the crucifix and the Protestants show a cross. Right. So by, I think by looking at just the cross, they've now kind of neglected or disregard the part of the sacrifice on our behalf. See, what I, I've talked with... I, I hope. Let me. I, I. I. hope I'm giving. It's a generalization, so I just take it. Be, take it with some care, because um, I'm trying to be fair to a Protestant. A Protestant would not agree with that way of putting it, because he would say, according to Scripture, he would say, according to Scripture, it's been made clear that what Christ did, he did once and for all. It's been done. So for for there to be a corpus on the cross is to misunderstand, or, or to take away from what Christ did. Yeah, the resurrection was more important than the... Yeah, yeah. So the cross is there as a symbol, but, and the, the interesting thing about me, I can understand that, I mean, why they... But the interesting thing for me is, in other scriptures, I'm thinking about Paul in Ephesians, where Paul says, and Christ himself says, pick up your cross, follow me. Paul says, continue the work that he began, because it's not done. We're supposed to continue this world, pick up our cross, follow it. So that, you know, there are conflicts in scripture, but Protestants would defend that position because they'd say, it's been done once and for all. You guys are not reading well, I think. But I, to me, then it also kind of gets to that negative view that they look at. I mean, it just kind of, so from my standpoint, I guess, as, as I follow that along, is since the act has already been done, and then, through some of the conversation, they seem to be more, there's more focus, or something's more focused on the Satan and the dark side, whereas I believe that through Christ's, you know, crucifixion is that love and forgiveness that he's trying to show. So I think that becomes absent. Well, that's also, historically, if you go back in the 1600s, 1700s, not what people today believe evil is the big thing. I mean, that was historically in a certain time period. Right. 
to a 21st century Protestant is not going to think the world is like peaceful. Everyone has to, you know, mm -hmm. they're, they're walking on eggshells because one of the other interesting things that I didn't touch on, but it's 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 we're coming to time, so but let me keep to it, in your thinking about this. Keep this in mind. If you take away the sacraments, those of you who did this earlier when we did Moby Dick and Faulkner's The Town, the, the Snopes trilogy, remember in Moby Dick that Ishmael encounters all of these Christians, and they're all failing. They're all they're all not living love. They're all preoccupied with their world. If you take the sacraments out, how much, given our fallen nature, if you take the sacraments out, how much help do we really get in making Christ's divine love present here on earth? Because in Moby Dick's, we saw it doesn't exist. Christianity gets reduced to a moral code. What's the call for Catholics? It's holiness. The direction, the, the, the inclination of the Protestant world is, is to accommodate to the world. Anglican, English, that is national, Greek Orthodox, race. Those get in the way. The, 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 the love is supposed to be universal, and we, we're not supposed to pick and choose. We're supposed to love everybody, even enemies, the way Christ did. Remember, I, hold on to justice here, because I don't want to lose that, because it gets lost. But, but the point that I'm trying to make here, take away the sacraments and the, sacraments and the movements towards the respectable order, the, the tendency of the Protestant world is towards respectability. The tendency of the Catholic should, should be to holiness. Why are they holding up the saints every day at a Mass? The, the question for a Catholic should be, am I, am I giving in to this movement towards respectability become successful and, you know, when the call is to holiness. And holiness means loving that divine life <laughs> when it takes you to a cross. If you take the cross out of it for a Protestant world, then you've got dignity, respectability, proper. If you're looking at a Catholic world, there's going to be something bloody. It's really bloody. I mean, if it's the cross, real cross. I had wanted to read something from Dante, um, but I think what I'm going to do, because it's late and this has been heavy, when we start, we're going to start Dante next time, and I want to read the passage that I meant to read. But before you leave, hold on. Dante start, or Milton started with angels, Satan and the angels, with what we cannot know. Dante's going to begin with himself, Mary, Lucia, Beatrice, Virgil. Who are they? All real people. All of them real. He's going to begin with what's real. He's, he wants to go to the top of this mountain where the sun is. That's a longing for immortality, to be with the light. And he's going to get beaten back by these beasts. And suddenly he'll, this is interesting, those of you who have been here for a while, suddenly a, a, a shadowy figure will approach him. And he'll hear a voice in the description of it as if a voice had grown faint. Who is it? Virgil. The... The, po the poetry that has become faint, the, the voice that people don't hear anymore. Virgil, who's a pagan of the natural order, comes to help Dante, who's a Catholic, get up that mountain. But he says, before you can climb that mountain, you have to go down. You cannot go up until you learn to see your sins for what they are. What's ahead of him is a ghastly horror. 
Dante's got to learn to see those worst parts of himself that he never wanted to see. That's the beginning of the Divine Comedy. So, it's, um, how do I put this? It's, it's not a story for squeamish souls. Hell, hell is a terrifying place. Oh, hold on before you go, sorry. When I was in graduate school, we'd, I'd read Dante for the first time. I didn't know about him, and it just it was an amazing moment. Another friend and I were up in the graduate lounge at UD. We were reading it together, and his comment to me, he just converted. I, I wasn't yet, you know, I knew I would. His comment to me was, it's terrifying because he saw, after he read that, he wondered how many of his relatives really in hell. And as you, as you read through it, don't forget this, 90% of the people in hell are Catholics. So, if you're reading Dante for comfort, get another book.